Hi, this is Wild Nick Brown, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another episode of Focus on Metal, as this week we continue on with our deep dive into the sophomore self-titled release from Lynch Mob. So on the last episode, we were talking with bassist Anthony Esposito all about the uh, the self-titled release, and this week... We're switching it over, and we are talking to the new guy in the band at this point, vocalist Robert Mason. And uh, this was, you know, the first big, you know, record debut from Robert, where his name really became known. And obviously, since then, he's gone on to all kinds of stuff, including his current gig as the guy fronting Warrant. And obviously, as a new guy in the band, he's got a really cool perspective about what he's seeing and, you know, also kind of being risen up, almost like Anthony was on the debut album from Lynch Mob. So he's got lots of cool stuff to talk about, including a lot of great interactions that he had with uh, the uh, amazing Glenn Hughes, which uh, speaking of Glenn, if you haven't gone out and got the latest Dead Daisies release, Radiance, I uh, I highly recommend that one. You'll uh, you'll definitely enjoy it. But anyways, going back to this again, like I said, Robert had a lot of interaction with Glenn and Anthony talked a bit about it on the prior episode. But really this week we get uh, Robert to really talk about his experience with Glenn, with George, with Anthony, the whole thing. And uh, good stuff for this episode as well as the following episode. That's how much stuff that uh, Robert had to talk about. And since there is so much to talk about, I'm going to shut the hell up. I'm going to turn it over to Richie and Robert Mason. Hello. Is that Robert? It is. Hey, Robert, it's Richie. Hey, man, how are you today? I'm okay. Sorry to get you up so early. No, you're not. Honestly, I'll tell you what. I swear to you, I keep farmer's hours when I'm home. Okay. When you sent me the text yesterday, I was like, mm, surely you can't mean 10 my time. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. I, I tell you what. I've uh, Aunt knows I was always, everywhere we were, I was always the first guy up. Okay. Like making breakfast in the in the front of the bus or wherever we were. So I, for real. So, no worries. Even if, you got, even if you're playing a show late, you're still up early. Yeah, I've got that gene in me, man. It's like I don't sleep in well. I have to force myself to do that. Okay. And when I'm home, you know, I still live in Arizona, and it's it's beautiful and sunny almost every morning. You know, 300 days a year, I get beautiful sunshine, and I do not waste that. I have two big dogs that I, you know, have in the house, so they're they're up at the crack of dawn. They don't like to sleep in either. So, you know, we're just... We're just early risers here, man, and I, uh, I'm, I'm a coffee addict. So when I get some of that in me, I'm, I'm good to go. Okay, so I'm in, um, I'm in Massachusetts. I know you played up here a couple of weeks ago. Um, I have interviewed you before for the last Warrant record. I recall this. Okay, I don't know how many Irish guys interview you. So <laughs> sometimes that stands out and people remember me, but and sometimes they don't, which I understand. 
don't know. I, I, I it's familiar. So okay. And and when Ant reminded me, he says, "Always, his name is Richard." He, he, he asks really good questions. I'm like, I, and I even said that to him. Like, I know this guy, right? He's like, you must have. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So I'm gonna we're gonna get in depth about the uh, the self-titled Lynch Mob record, and I spent about 45 minutes with Anthony yesterday. And he was great, and he's the one who recommended me, me getting in touch with you, and you've been gracious enough to do it. So I'm going to go back to just before you joined Lynch Mob. Can you tell me about what band you were in before you left to join? Well, I uh, I was kicking around New York City, and the, the year to maybe two or three prior to Lynch Mob, I played with a couple of different groups of guys, one of which had a record deal on Epic Sony. And that ended up being the kind of situation where you demo songs and they pay for you, you know, they pay your way to demo because they see some sort of promise in you. And then once we demoed enough for, I mean, probably damn near a record, maybe half a record, really, really good demos uh, with a guy named David Prater, Mm. who, uh, who was doing, at the time, he was doing the first Firehouse record. So I met, it's funny, he would do double sessions. And, you know, I'm not going to say there were stimulants involved, but, you know, maybe it was coffee, maybe it was something <laughs> else. But, but I don't know how the guy could do, like, day shifts with us and night shifts with the, the Firehouse guys. But we would cross paths at his studio, which was actually his house in, I think, Livingston, New Jersey. So we'd be doing demos there. I met the Firehouse guys way back when. Uh, that record got passed on or the band got passed on because the A&R guy that had signed us moved on. Uh, a guy named Don Grierson had left uh, Epic Sony in New York. He was a, an Australian or New Zealand guy. Um, but he left and another guy came in and as it happens in record companies, you know, the new guy coming in wants to flex his muscles and, and get all his pet projects made. And we were not one of them, so we got put on a shelf, and then we got released. So then I put a band together with a bunch of local guys, uh, no local New Jersey guys. Uh, the band was called The Pack, as in a pack of wolves or a pack of cigarettes. So we were showcasing around the city and and doing that, and just feeling, you know, I was, I was getting the same thing. I remember Michael Alago pulling me aside after one of those showcases and saying, man, this is, this is really good. But there's a lot like this out there, and you know what I mean. It was not; it didn't stand out enough. And and now I feel really weird even saying this. Like Michael pulled me aside. Boy, I love Michael Alago dearly. If you know who Michael is, he's like a legendary yep. uh, a and R guy. And I knew him in New York, and he would come out, and all these guys would see the band. And you know, I don't know if you're familiar with what that's like. You go to a rehearsal place like SIR or Montana, or in LA, you know, your, your third encore or whatever. And you're on a little stage and you pretend it's a sold out show at Madison Square Garden. And on the other side of this small room are like a bunch of record company suits. I think we refer to them as record company weasels if they were the lower level type. <laughs> With like notepads or tape recorders. And then they would review you and then they would go up to their higher ups and say, I just saw this band and they were great. You got to go sign them. You know, so we did a bunch of live shows, but we also played these showcases. Michael pulls me aside after one of them and says, you, you look like a star up there. And the band just isn't, I don't think this band is going to, is going to be the vehicle for it. And I kind of trust that guy. So when I heard that, 
two and three times, I kind of got the bug and started making calls around and just, wasn't really like looking for a gig. I really wanted my band to do well, but I heard through a friend that Lynch Mob was auditioning singers and I had realized when the Wicked record came out that Oni was the singer and, you know, and I knew all that, I peripherally knew all that stuff. But I was still in New York. I'd never been west of Chicago in my life. And I found out they were auditioning by accident. Um, I think my friend Brian Tishy was trying to hook me up with it at one point in time. Okay. And it fell through. And it kind of didn't happen. Then another guy who was a singer in another local band called my girlfriend at the time and said, Hey, uh, uh, can you get me a tick? She was a flight. She's a flight attendant. So, you know, you got to picture this. I'm sorry. I didn't fill in that part of the scenario. Hmm. She's, she's a flight attendant for at the time, continental airlines. Right. Yep. So she and I are dating. She gets a phone call from this other singer asking for a buddy pass. So like a free ticket. So he can go to Arizona and audition for Lynch mob. And we get back from a date and there's this answering machine message. Like at her mom's house, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I guess I'm 26 at the time, and and she says I'm not gonna fly him anywhere. Then she says, Well, do you want to go figure out if you can go audition? I'll fly you out. And so immediately I got on the phone and I called uh, I called Ron Lafitte, who I think was one of the only guys I knew in LA at the time, uh, record company and manager type guy. Ron's a great guy. So Ron was trying to help me, I guess a year or two prior. I had been hooked up with some guys at, uh, at a couple of record labels, and they tried to put me with a couple of different artists. Uh, Dream Theater was even one of them. Pete Ganbarg at uh, SBK, S, SKB Records, I don't even remember, tried to pitch me as a singer for what would become Dream Theater back in the day. Wow. That's a little-known fact, too. I think that, that made the Dream Theater book. Okay. I, I believe uh, their drummer came up to me and and said, I know who you are. And I said, from the book? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Mike, Mike Portnoy. Mike Portnoy, um, yeah. Yeah. And so, okay, let's go exactly where we were. I called Ron Lafitte, left him a message, and I said, hey, Lynch Mob's auditioning singers, if you know anything about this, let me know. So, essentially, the next day, I guess Ron had gone to everybody he knew, which were... Howard Kaufman, who managed Lynch Mob at the time, Bob Krasnow, president of Electra, whoever he needed to, and said, I found your boy. He's a New York guy. He's uh, he's, he's living back east. You got to get him to audition. He's your guy. Trust me. So the next day, I get calls from all these people saying, okay, when do you want to come out and audition for Lynch Mob? Like, overnight. Wow. And at the time, I didn't realize it, it was it was lost on me how unique how unique that is. <laughs> I, back then, it really was like in one day, the right guy, one phone call, boom, done. Uh, so I got calls from uh, Howard Kaufman's management people saying, "Okay, when do you want to come out?" And I said, "Hold on, whoa, 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 hold on, I need like a week or two, but I can come out any time. I should probably learn some some of these Lynch Mob songs. Like I had to go buy a Lynch Mob cassette and go." You know, because I'm like, what am I going to do? I know some Dokken stuff. I'm a, I was a Dokken fan. And I was into writing my own music. And I and I know a bunch of covers from playing covers. So I guess I figure out I can do it. So I fly out there on my own dime. Aunt picks me up. We go audition. And I spent like several hours in the room. What did you sing in the audition? You remember? Oh, man. Probably probably the singles. Okay. Uh, off that wicked record. So River, River of Love and, and the title track. 
Yeah, and maybe even Hellchild or or uh, or she's evil. Okay. Pretty good recollection of that. I know they're dat tapes of my entire audition. Probably Lynch has them. Who knows? Dude. But I know that they recorded the whole thing. Then we ended up doing covers that I do. Then we ran out of all of that shit, and we started. George started, was just saying, "Hey, this is you know." I guess it was going well, and he said, "Do you want to just scat over and tell me what sort of ideas you have over these ideas I have?" Yeah. So they started. They started playing all these what would become that next record. A lot of really roughly hewn together song ideas musically, and I just scattered over them and sang some choruses. Some of those melodies were keepers. Okay. okay. Um, did you get to hang with the guys before you went in there, or were you just brought in and said, right, stand there, we're, we're going to play the songs? Well, I was, uh, I guess Aunt picked me up from my hotel. And so we arrived. I think it was kind of just like Mick and George showed up. Uh, Mick might have been there already. George might have showed up a little late. But we just kind of stood in that front room. There was a small front room in the uh, the rehearsal place on a coma. And they kind of showed me around. We walked in and the whole staging was set up. Like all the Lynch Mob live staging was set up with mixed kit and risers and the whole thing. And there's a microphone right dead center in front of it all. And it was, yeah, Richard, it was kind of like that. They were like, okay, well, here, let's get going. What do you know? What do you want to sing first? Okay. Um, uh, how nervous were you? It's it sounds weird to say it now. I was probably nervous, but I'm pretty well seasoned at that point. Okay. I played on a bunch of stages. I had done thousands of songs in cover bands and had been through two original band situations, one of which had a record deal where I was, you know, meeting the signing contracts, going going into New York and dealing with these people and everything. So it was just another gig. It was it's it wasn't just another gig. It was important to me, but but I'm sitting there going, I'm, I'm either going to get this or I'm not, and I figure I'm good enough to get this. And as I started doing a few songs, the way I recall it now, it just felt pretty natural, and everybody was happy, and, you know, let's do another. Okay, let's do another. You know, I mean, I was there for hours. Did, did you get the inclination after the audition that you had the gig. Was there any? Can you remember body language from any of the other guys? Maybe high five in you, or did they even say it to you at the end of it? You you have the gig if you want it. George wanted me to stay. Aunt was pretty convinced, and but I realized that I had snuck in in the middle of everybody else's audition. They had oh the one thing I do recall when I walked in the front door, I saw a huge box of basically opened un, unopened and opened mail, which was perhaps dozens and dozens, if not hundred other singers submitting their eight by 10 glossies and cassettes or CDs of themselves singing. And I, <laughs> it was right there in the front front room. You know, it was kind of like an office complex, a, a warehouse complex. So it's kind of, you walk in the front door, there's a small room and it was kind of like an office or an entryway. So, I saw that first, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I know what I'm doing. I know I'm sneaking in here, and this is the gig that a lot of people want. Uh, after the audition, George pretty much said, can you stay? Well, I mean, like, stay. Yeah. And 
here's the rub. I snuck out of New York, flew to Arizona, auditioned for Lynch Mob. The next morning, I had to get home because I had a show with the pack playing the Palladium uh, the next night. I think it was Bang Tango's second record release party. Okay. And we were the support act. And I had told no one where I was going. Because <laughs> what if it turned what if it turned out horribly? Yeah. You know, I'm just like, hey, got out for the day, like I said. You know, I'm flying on Continental Airlines dime with no expense to Lynch Mob. And George is like, Can you stay? And I was like, I can't. I have a gig tomorrow in Manhattan. Like a gig tomorrow in Manhattan. You know, Anthony's laughing. He's like, I think Mick, if I, rec- I, I'm sure I recall this correctly. I don't know if Ant corroborated all this stuff, but Mick said, look, we've got a lot of people. Let's, we, Mick and I sort of decided, I even remember at the time saying, leave no stone unturned. Like if you find a better guy and it's got to be a battle, you have to have me back or whatever. And if you don't, you, you let me know. And I don't know whether that seemed cocky at the time. Uh, it really wasn't. It was genuine. And I had to get home. So I did that, did that, um, flew back the next morning, did that gig. And I kind of didn't know whether or not it was the last gig that band was ever going to do. There were issues in that band. I had two wonderful guitar players, but there were a couple of little issues in that band. And uh, and I sort of felt myself like, wow, I just auditioned for this national act like in Arizona where it's beautiful. And I fly fly back to Newark Airport and play this gig in Manhattan where it's not beautiful, you know? <laughs> like, right then I was like, man, I I can move back to Phoenix. So I kind of, I didn't sit by the phone, but I was, you know, every day I was waiting for a phone call. And uh, I would get calls from one of the three guys about how, oh, the guy that auditioned was just okay. Or like, oh, this guy was pretty good, but he wasn't you. And, you know, the third guy's like, Oh, this guy came and George left after one song. He just got on his motorcycle and left wow. the rehearsal place like without saying a word. So uh, after about two weeks, George called me and just said, hey, do you want a gig? It's you if you want it. Okay. So you had to literally fly out there and stay for... for, for how long were you staying in Arizona in the beginning? Because you were probably doing pre-production then, were you? Yeah, I, I came back out. Uh, I flew back out and we were... We went sort of right into, within a couple of days, we went into uh, rehearsal for a mini tour up and down California, down to Tijuana, and then back to Arizona. They, I think my joke at the time was they're, they're, they're trying to kill me. We're doing like 14 shows in 12 days. That's what, Anthony, last- that's what Anthony said to me yesterday. As They were trying you out, trying to see how your voice had last, and they, they did a bunch of shows back to back. Yeah, we, we quite literally got into it two vans and did it like old school punk rock style just you know whatever uh la quinta and circle you know, or, or whatever they were uh, uh you know motel six hotel like just that but that low budget going finding lunch somewhere getting into a venue and then going to the next city next morning it was uh and it was fun and i got to sing those songs you know what i mean and, and immediately thrown to the wolves to do that how much rehearsal, Robert, did you have before you did that tour? Because you probably had to work up at least an hour's material. Yeah, we were, uh, We pro- I think we had opening bands, so we were doing, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you how long the set was. Okay. I don't, know, I don't know if that's not one of those things. I just, 
take hold of them. I mean, it was everything I knew, you know, like every Lynch Mob song, and then I think we would do one or two Dawkins songs. Okay. So it's probably an hour, hour and 15, hour and a half worth of material, you know, throw a lengthy George Lynch guitar solo in there, Mr. Scary and whatever else, and yeah. I'm, I'm sure the great thing about doing that in the beginning was the close proximity to the other guys, you, you had to bond with them. You get to know each other pretty well if you're doing that many shows in that short a space of time. Yeah, you know, uh, I think I had instantaneous bond with Anthony because we had we had realized we had probably been in the same clubs, in the same rooms, at the same parties in New York and the boroughs and never knew it and had never met back there. Hmm. Um, I vaguely knew who he was because I guess like the beggars and thieves thing or something else, but we weren't, we weren't friends back then. So yeah, you're instantly thrown in with, you know, living out of each other's pockets as the saying goes. Um, uh, Mick is great. Mick, you know, Mick is like a party. I think I, well, I stayed at Mick's house for a little while in the very beginning. So I got, uh, I got thrown right into the Cave Creek lifestyle where Mick Brown at the time <laughs> was was like the unofficial mayor of Cave Creek. So, Yeah, I remember I've asked yeah. a few musicians who've played with Mick how wild was he when it comes to, you know, partying and staying up. And they've all told me that, you know, you, you think you can drink and then you go out with Mick. Yeah, no, there's an expression that even my band today uses it. it it's referred to being Mick Browned. <laughs> Oh wow! <laughs> oh yeah. And did did you bond with George straight away as well? Yeah, I think we did musically because it was on us. It was on me to come up with a bunch of melodies and lyrics, and I mean everybody helped. And, and Nick actually wrote brilliant lyrics along with them when we got into it with Keith. Yeah, he did as well. You know, that's at the time George was very much here. I'll hand you a bunch of music, and I'm not a lyrics guy. You go for it. But I remember staying for a short bit before I had uh, secured a, an apartment. A couple of days at Ants, you know, a little while, like I said, at Mix, but I spent a, a bunch of time in George's guest house uh, before we did that tour and afterward to write that record. So, yeah, I mean, he's an interesting guy. Part of it's, you know, when it comes down to it, part of it's got to be upbringing and part of it's got to be who you become as you grow up and then how that's enabled maybe is the best way to describe it as you, as you become an adult, whether or not your behavior is condoned and, and enabled or not, but he's an eccentric guy or that's enhanced because people allow him to be an eccentric guy. Okay. So he's, got a, he's got a different personality than anyone I had ever met prior to that, even artists, because when you're, when you're coming up, you make friends it's funny, you make friends first and then you guys put a band together or, you know, you meet other musicians who are like-minded and you put another band together and this guy from this band quits and then you get that guy. So, I believe, like you're saying, there's always a, I, where, where I believe you're going, there's always a camaraderie aspect. But in this case, it seemed, I had known whatever you read in magazines and hear about the George and Don Dawkin uh, headbutting and, you know, they don't get along and that's that was like an, that was played up as an essential element in in Dockett. Like the Edward Van Halen and Dave Roth thing, how if they butt heads, it's part of what makes Van Halen cool and exciting and dangerous. Maybe that was played up and maybe not. George was very nice and very welcoming. Like I said, I was, I, but I was, to an extent, I was the new shiny dime. You know, they had just gotten out of a situation where they 
didn't have much good to say about their singer, and I heard it all. And then you're kind of praised because you're the new guy coming in, and maybe it's a honeymoon period. So it was great back then. How did the guys in the pack take it when you said you were leaving the band? Not very well. I believe one or two were pretty much wishing me well, and and the others were not very happy. Uh, but it was... I was very determined at that point, and that that obviously is a pretty damn big break for a guy like me to be instantly thrust into, here, major label record deal, a whole bunch of money to make records, like, a whole bunch of money, and you are making a record that will be released on Elektra within a year or two, you know? Yeah. <laughs> from, from going from, Sir, will you please listen to our songs and tell us what you think? are we worthy enough to be on your label to to sign here, please? You're in the band, you know? Yeah. And, and to have felt like I earned it, mm. you know? But yeah, those guys, I, I still talk to a couple of them today. Obviously, there are no really bad, hard feelings, but, but yeah, I mean, it couldn't have felt great. They probably thought if we work a little harder, this is going to, things are going to break, break up, break, you know, on our side. Yeah. As much as I enjoyed it, I could see the issues that A&R people were telling me about the band, and I made a pragmatic decision, you know, and I went with my heart. If I'm considered to be opportunistic or cold, if those are bad adjectives, yeah, okay, so be it. I could see that side of it. But I had been working nonstop several times and had one stalled experience with the labels before, and I realized this is a it felt like a good opportunity, golden opportunity for me. And it turned out pretty darn well. So, Tell me your first impressions of Keith Olsen when he came in to do pre-production. <laughs> okay, this is, I'm, I'm guaranteeing you this is going to be very similar to, uh, to Ants, if you've asked them a similar question. Yeah, I did. Which is, which I, is brilliant. I think this is great, Richard. I, I'm really having fun today, but thank you for doing this for me. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, after having other guys in that would only speak through their attorneys, no kidding, other producers who will remain nameless. We went in auditioning producers, so we're all sitting at a boardroom table at Howard Kaufman's uh, management, Beverly Hills. The other guys walked in and were very cold. Maybe had come off a really big record or two and were a little cocky, perhaps. Uh, and quite literally, they wouldn't answer questions. Their attorney was answering questions. It's like we had an interpreter. Wow. That was a huge turnoff, and I just went, well, fuck these guys. I mean, quite literally, before they walked out of the room, we were like, fuck these guys. Keith walks in, and his first two words are, hey, man. No kidding. Big smile. You know, he wasn't a big guy, but he had a big presence. And he walks in, and he's like, I listen to demos. You know, I've done this. And I mean, by by reputation only, if, if only by reputation, I was a voracious reader of liner notes. I knew, I felt like I knew everything about Keith Olsen just from the records that I know he produced throughout his career. And I knew exactly who he was. He was very high on my list. I don't think I picked too many producers, but the second his name was mentioned, I'm like, yes, that guy. I just wanted to meet him. And he was personable and just fun and happy in the studio, in the, uh, in the, in the room that day. And I would be surprised if anybody said they didn't get an immediate good read from him. The only name Anthony mentioned yesterday when I brought up potential producers, Richie Zito was one. That's correct, yeah. yes. Um, 
And I asked him about Michael Wagner and Neil Kernan because Don and, or not Don, uh, Mick and George had worked with him in the past and he said their names didn't come up. Richie Zito was one and he said there was a bunch of others and you're telling me now that they, all these guys were coming in with attorneys. Well, one I know one production pair did. I mean, there were a bunch of guys, like I said, I think that was a, it wasn't too, too long a day, but there were several contenders uh, it may have been narrowed down a little more by the time the meeting actually happened. But, yeah, Richie was one of the guys. Uh, I think we were kind of shooting for the stars. Uh, Ant might have wanted some really big-name guy. Uh, I think Dwayne Barron and John Prudell came in. Okay. They had just come off the Aussie's album, yeah. Yeah, some other stuff. And they're and they're great. They're all great and, and overqualified, like a lot of them, to do you know, to do a record at the time. But I think we just got that great read from Keith and Keith is, you know, Keith was an undeniable legend as far as being a song guy and a, and a production guy of every sort of thing from rock to pop to just got everything. So what, I guess that's at that, that. St- at that stage in your career, Robert, what did you want from a producer? Uh, I had been through some sessions in New York city and had dealt with uh, Dave Crater, who was great and talented, but he was a difficult personality, maybe. And I was looking for a positive experience in the studio. Once you've been on the other side of the glass, in you know, in front of a microphone, and everybody else, you get that everything from studio paranoia to "Am I doing okay?" to "Am I getting the right feedback?" to you know, there are some producers that'll go in the talkback mic, you know, when you, when you don't quite get it. And they're like, unlucky mate, try again. You know, like really sarcastically after a while. I think that is the absolute wrong approach to get the best performances out of people. Okay. And, and perhaps I'm wrong, but that's my take on it as an, as, as being the guy screaming into a mic with a, put, I, I put more pressure on myself than I allow anyone else to. And when someone is being an absolute tyrannical hard ass in the studio and thinks, that's the way to maybe anger the best performances out of me or force that out of me. I just like, yeah, I don't have time for this bullshit. Like I, I've literally walked out of sessions before. Wow. Like, nah, maybe this isn't for me, dude. Go find somebody else. Like, so for me, having that positive environment, I mean, Keith, make no mistake, Keith brought a lot out of me and pushed me, but did it in a way which I can almost describe as like, like a favorite uncle or fatherly. You know what I mean? It's like encouraging, but dare, try this. I, you can do this. Starting with a compliment, maybe. So I, I remember him saying, I'm trying to sing through the upper atmosphere and into the sky, right? You know, because when you're a young guy, you're thinking, oh, no, higher, 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 higher. I've got, this, I've got this high chest voice. I sang a verse of a song low, and he stopped the tape. And both he and Shay were like, Oh, what's that? And Shay, our engineer at the time, is like, "Dude, you sound he's total New York. Like he'll confess to this, total New York Italian. Like the, the whole New York goomba kind of thing." He's like, "Holy shit, dude! That's dude. You sound like Bowie. God, that's fucking great. Do more of that, <laughs> you know." And I'm like, uh, uh, "Sing, sing low, sing like baritone." He's like, "I didn't know you could do that. You're singing all this." freaking stupid high harmonies all this stuff and everybody in the studio Keith included was like encouraging in the best ways for whatever I did and 
I truly believe that brought those performances out, or at least enabled me to feel comfortable and be me. Okay, Robert. What I'm so trying, that's what I look for. Yeah, what I'm trying to get at here as well is what didn't work that it got to the point where Glenn Hughes came in. Uh, I was young and the least accomplished or the least experienced, perhaps, in the studio and at that level of everybody. Uh, I don't know whether it was, and initially. It's funny, I didn't take it like I was hurt by that at all, because Keith suggested, hey, uh, you know who Glenn Hughes is? I'm like, yeah, I met him a few months ago. I have the Hughes Thrall record. I know exactly who Glenn Hughes is. I mean, like, Glenn's, you know, like a god to me. He says, well, I can have him in here to sing backgrounds, and and if, and if he can suggest some stuff to you and maybe, you know, help you out. I was like, he didn't even have to have to finish that sentence. I was like, how soon can you get Glenn Hughes here? <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't even take that as an insult, even if it was intended as one, because I think George tried to use that against me a little bit, which was weird. That was one of the one of the first things I thought, wow, that's something's weird about this guy's personality. That's a little that's all fucking weird. I'm just going to take this in the best possible way and see what happens now. Now, Glenn went in and it was like going to voice of rock rock god school for me. And it's not like I didn't know what to do, but him demoing along with me or suggesting things or us sitting in, it was like workshopping those songs to fine tune them and make them someone's version of better. Now, I mean, it's arbitrary, but okay, cool. Glenn did some backgrounds. Glenn sang some really cool stuff for me. I was like, oh, wow, stuff I would have never thought of, but he's different than I am. I didn't want to be a clone of Glenn Hughes, but a couple of those suggestions were freaking awesome and I copped them. You know, it's, it's not like he was brought in. I don't, if someone has said it's it, Glenn Hughes was brought in because, uh, no one was happy with what I was singing. That may have been a little bit of a harsh description of what went on. Um, was Glenn brought in, was suggested to you at pre-production or were you actually in the studio recording the record and Keith said, look, I can get Glenn in here to help? During the recording. Okay. How how far how, how far into your vocals? Can you remember? Was it pretty soon into it? Man, I was... I honestly don't recall. Okay. I truly don't recall. Man, I, I know I did... Uh, and we had done rough demos of all these songs and I was in there maybe just a few days to a week. I have to remember, I did, I was there for seven days, two times, and did all the vocals for the Lynch Mob record. Okay. Not months, not many, it was a week before New Year's, Christmas and New Year's, and a week after. Okay. Uh, we, we had done a little pre-production prior to that in the studio, but when it came to really doing the vocals, I knocked out seven in a row with background vocals and went home for Christmas, came back after New Year's, and did the remaining seven. Wow. Well, I mean, I think Anthony has the record. I think Anthony did all his bass in two days. <laughs> a day and a half, I told me. <laughs> all right, we're gonna, I'm going to round up. We're going to call it two days. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I spoke to Anthony and he mentioned that, I said, well, that, that was great because it gave the guitars and the vocals maybe more time and it would have saved studio money too if you get the bass done really quickly. Yeah, well, it's a, 
and, and I did the I did the vocal equivalent of the same thing. So I guess it left a lot of room for George to be a quote unquote experimental. Wow. But uh, but yeah, man, so, I don't remember. It, it all happened so quickly. It felt like yeah. It's not like, and they were accustomed to, and I know this for a fact, they spent months, George would spend months, everybody would tell me the stories of how, wow, dude, you did what, two vocals today? One, two songs, what'd you do? You know, yeah, that's okay, what's wrong with that, that's what I do, or like all of a song and all the background, like, well, you know, back in the day, Don, I would go to the studio and I'd come in there and say, okay, Don, what did you get? And he would say, oh, I got a word, you know, and I know that was probably exaggerative, but but I know they were, it was pulling teeth with them with singers in the past. So and I was, I had done a bunch of sessions. I was pretty much, um, you know, young, but still at the top of my game physically, maybe not experience wise. And my voice could go forever and, you know, within reason. So what, what way would it work with Glenn? Would he play, would Keith play the track? And then Glenn would maybe go in and sing. He'd listen to you sing, and then he'd say, maybe try this, or maybe take that out. What, what, how did that relationship work? Pretty much exactly like that. I mean, he was kind of fly on the wall, and a cons- like in a consultancy capacity. Yeah. You know, and, and which, which, funny, because I ended up doing that, employed by Keith Olsen for years after that. I became what Glenn Hughes was. I was called in to help singers through all their tracks. I'd done records with Keith. He'd call me. He's like, hey, man, I got a gig in L.A. I got a record with this band. Here's the money. Here's how long I need you for. Can you do it? And if I was home, I flew out or drove out, hung at Keith's place or got a hotel, you know, whatever he wanted. I would I'm stayed at his place in Malibu. We'd drive into the studio every morning. I'd go work with the singer and help them through either... I mean, there was a German band that I kind of helped through the language barrier and a pronunciation. There was a, a couple of American bands where I just did literally help their singer whose only influence was like 80s metal. And I said, hey, there's this guy, you know, for instance, I said, hey, there's this guy named Glenn Hughes. There's a guy named Paul Rogers. There's, there are bluesy there are influences. There are, there's Otis Redding and Sam Cooke and, you know, <laughs> Tina Turner and Mavis Staples. And like, there are these other singers that like opening up their eyes to other flavors and doing the same exact thing suggesting and then singing some background vocals maybe doubling some lead vocals if the singer wasn't as strong i mean i yes i was hired to do that okay you know so yeah i mean that's kind of what glenn did for me which was brilliant yeah i thank him to this day he knows that i hope was he uh was he sober then fully sober i don't believe so because i I recall going to one of the last parties where Glenn was still drinking, and that was in maybe a year later. Okay. Yeah. Year two. I, I mean, to his credit, got completely sober and stayed that way, and is a testament to somebody who fell victim to tons of demons back in the day, you know, but turned his life around. Um, he comes into the studio to help you do vocals. Does Did he just walk in and sing, or did he warm up? You know what's funny is I don't even recall. I, I I may have been amazed by the fact that the guy just sings like a bird. Yeah. Upon waking, you, you know, like <laughs> with a cup of with a cup of coffee. Yeah. Like I'm like motherfucker, you and Robin Zander, fuck you guys. Like, you, guys are, <laughs> you know, I remember him warming up a little, and even like you know warming up, and then like a cough, and then going through, and they go, and then all of a sudden becoming Glenn Hughes. 
wow. behind the mic. Yeah, and it was more like friendship. It wasn't like, hey, kid, you don't know shit. I'm going to show you what to do. He was very nice. And Keith, again, was very cool. I think that they probably wanted to, they saw potential in me and maybe wanted to show me a little different direction. And here you go. No better way. Was Robert, was there anything that Glenn suggested and you just said, no, that's not going to work? Or did there were a couple of things I may have, I may have by not, not just, you know, fought him on it, yeah. but, but probably just sang it my way anyway and created a compromise. Okay. You know, it's, I mean, I did not go in there and just sing everything Glenn did, but he had, he had wonderful suggestions. And I was willing to try, I, I really was willing to try anything. I wasn't as, I was way open to ideas, knew that it was a growth experience for me rather than I'm me and this is how I sing and F you if you don't like it. You yeah. know, I wasn't, I was not that way at all. If anything, I was a little passive and willing and open to suggestion. Okay. Did Keith kind of defer to Glenn when it came to giving you vocal, vocal, uh, like lessons on what he wanted or, or was Keith very hands-on with that as well as Glenn? Keith was as hands-on as anybody. He's, he would give me enough rope. It's funny. I don't know whether he was giving me enough rope to hang myself or not, but he would, <laughs> he would, he would let me, he would let me go run free, you know, go, go little, go little one, run free. And then he's like, ah, it's just not there yet. You know? And I remember a couple of times of him, of me just, running myself out of ideas and giving him several suggestions. Cause I do that in the studio. I'll, I'll never sing it the same way twice, you know, by almost, maybe that's something that, that Keith taught me. I think I was always that way, but, but it was reinforced by him. I was like, here, try something different. Okay. And I'll just go in my head and, you know, on the fly, real time, figure out little nuance differences in the way I sing things, melody changes or timing changes. Uh, I'm a big fan of stealing around the beat. I think my dad made me listen to too much Frank Sinatra growing up. Okay. So I'm not a very sing, you know, I don't sing super like a white guy singing pop rock, you know, like um, I don't do that. Okay. Even, even in Warrant, like Lane was a little like that, let's be honest. And I'm, and I'm not. So when I sing the Warrant stuff, I realize that I, I blues it up a little bit or maybe, you know, do that, do that thing. Okay. That's different. So I would give him different suggestions and Keith would, uh, immediately it's like either you know you knew when you got it with keith because immediately in a talk back it was like yeah man moving on let's go you know and you knew it's like okay okay knock that one out let's go to the next so if it wasn't that way i think he would bring glenn in here and there glenn would just like come in the room and say hey man try this or hold this note out do this a little bit like that you know little suggestions it wasn't like glenn sang the entire record and they sent me home with the tapes to read to learn Okay. It really wasn't like that. Yep, skidding to a stop for this episode. And like I said, we will resume with Robert on the next one as well because, again, he gave us tons of talk. And, you know, leaving off there, talking about the uh, interaction with Glenn Hughes. More on that on the next episode. So good stuff to uh, to look forward to. And if you haven't caught the uh, the first episode of this little mini-series with Anthony Esposito, go up to uh, focusonmetalpod.com, up to Amazon Music, over to iTunes, 
and look for episode 544. And also, if you want to catch up with uh, what Robert and the rest of the guys in Warrant are doing these days, you can go to warrantrocks.com and uh, you can find out all the stuff that's going on with them. I will say they do have uh, new dates up there. They've got dates right through November, December into January of next year. So if you are looking to maybe go out and see Warrant, see Robert still uh blowing it out vocally live then uh, again warrantrocks.com but uh, for this week that's it there ain't no more stick a fork in it this puppy is done so for Richie myself and everybody else here at Focus on Metal have yourselves a great metal week and until we talk to you again next time as always remember Focus on Metal everything else is insignificant Still here? It's over. Go home.